you're joining us part way through, another one week after this week, working through our, our series on the subject of the Christian faith and work. We've called it Slave to the Machine, because that's actually what it feels like a lot of the time, doesn't it? It feels as if we're part of that sausage machine that just grinds away, and we're churned out at one end, and product, whatever it is that we're responsible for delivering, is churned out the other end, and we probably don't feel a great deal different from the product. That's what it feels like. We've just read a really interesting passage from the Bible, which you might think, well, how has this got anything to do with work. Let me just start by this, uh, this first thought. One of the amazing things I find about the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, is that it is grounded in normal life. Ordinary things are going on, and extraordinary things happen as ordinary things are going on. People are going about their day-to-day -day work, the responsibilities and activities that they have to deliver. And then what we find is that this Yahweh, this God of the Old Testament, the God who we then see in Jesus, and the God who we then receive in the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, becomes the God who intervenes in real life, ordinary life. I want to encourage you with this. It's great to come to church. It's great to sing songs of worship. It's great to engage in that uh, that time, that, that moment where, as Ant said at the beginning, we're encouraging each other, we're sharing together. But it is, it is disastrous if our faith in Jesus means that we enter into those times and we love them and they, we enjoy them, and they have absolutely no impact on our day-to-day -day lives. That is not what the Christian faith is all about. The Christian faith is not about hiding away in a little time of worship and then no difference for the rest of the time. The Christian faith is rooted in real life. It's how we live because of who we are. You might be looking at this idea of faith. You might be considering it. Let me explain that to you if you are thinking about this idea of faith. Faith is not a thing that we do over there. Faith is a thing that we become because we, we live in Jesus and it shapes every aspect of our life. And because many of us go to work, work is inevitably a place where we are again and again and again confronted with the challenges of the, the world that we actually live in compared to the world that God originally designed for us to live in. And so we are confronted with the, the challenge of seeking to live faithfully in times of compromise. Why do we have that compromise? Because the reality of the human heart corrupts the things that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. That, that's the work environment. Our work environments are corrupted places. They are. Uh, what are we doing on a day-to-day -day basis? How is our Christian faith shaping us so that we might be able to engage in that corrupt place in a way which brings just tiny little moments, little glimmers of a greater hope? Because that is what we have if we believe in Jesus, a greater hope. George Orwell captured the disastrous crisis of work 
brilliantly in his novel, Animal Farm. If you know the story, you will just be able to relate to it. The oppression of the farmer on the animals, the treatment of the animals as just, just elements to be abused so that he might benefit, uh, resulted in the animals rising up and in a revolution, which inevitably Orwell was pointing to what was going on uh, in the, the, the emergence of communism, just forcing out the powers over them so that they created this utopian dream of equality where all animals are equal and they all have a role to play. And what happened inevitably by the end of it, the pigs, don't know why he chose the pigs, I didn't study literature, some of you might be able to tell me later, the pigs eventually rise up above all of the other animals and they become the oppressive ones. Why? What's he, what is Orwell saying? He's saying no matter what system, no matter what idea, no matter what concepts that we have for the raising of wealth and the well-being of humanity, we always end up confronting the problem of the human heart, which is that we will end up oppressing each other. That's the work environment. That's the reality. I was speaking to somebody just this past week who's in a very senior management position in a global company. And the global company has written the most magnificent set of values. This is the kind of company that we want to be. We, we, were, we were fascinated when we looked at the kind of values that this company was espousing and we realized that so much of the intent of those values is actually rooted in the message of Jesus and in the gospel. The value of each other, the seeking of well-being, all of these great things. And then what he said was that the reality is that the company that I work for says that that's what we want to achieve but we don't even get close to living like that as a senior management team. <laughs> That's the reality of the human heart. How are you and I going to consider that in the idea of faith, if you're looking on? Is the Christian faith something that you might say can truly and deeply change me in a way which makes me live differently in the workplace? And if you have been changed by faith in Jesus, what does it mean for us when we are called to compromising situations? That is not, that is not some possibility that we might, oh, if it all goes horribly wrong, we might end up somehow being faced with a compromising situation in the workplace. That is, that is just fiction. We will be faced with a compromising situation. We will be. It will happen. Now, one of the things that I just want to make clear at the beginning as we start working through this is I am not talking, when I'm thinking about compromising situations, I'm not talking about those things which are clearly illegal. <laughs> we, we live, thank God, we live in a country which has a legislative system which at least 
purports to seek honesty and rightness. So I'm not talking about those things that are illegal. I'm talking about the other stuff, the stuff which is right on the edge, the stuff which is, makes us feel uncomfortable, the stuff where we see individuals abused, the stuff where we see profit uh, over people, the stuff, stuff where we see buying goods from dodgy, desperate countries, the stuff where we end up having to be involved in investments, where the investments we know are going to and being channeled into places which we know we are uncomfortable with where that money is going to, and yet we are called to be part of the project team that is making that investment or part of the team that is building this property that we know is going to result in an environment which is just horrific, or we are building ammunitions. And we know that the destiny of some of these ammunitions is places where there is just wrong use. What do we do in that kind of situation? The first thing that I would want us to see is that work is truly messed up because of our relationship with God because of our relationship with God. That's why it is messed up. We go right back to the beginning and we remind ourselves, what is work about? Why do we work? <laughs> why do we work? It's, it's, it's a good question, isn't it? It's a really good question in 21st century Western world where we've got this desperate desire for work-life balance and all of that kind of stuff. Why do we work? We work because there is a necessity for us to strive to live in this world. It is work which creates financial platforms for us to be able to have a health system. It is work which provides food on the table. It is work which provides a roof over our heads and in a wider societal situation protects those who are vulnerable. All of that is work. We work to create a society. We are called to do that. We are called to be part of that society. But we also know that work will be hard. We are detached from the idea that work is hard just to eat because we can just walk into a supermarket and we can just buy some food. But remind ourselves right back at the very beginning where this all went horribly wrong is that humanity rebelled against God and God said, from this moment on, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. The demand of the hard land has been replaced. The hard land that Adam is facing. It's been replaced by other stuff, but we are still faced with a hard work environment. But it doesn't seem like that hard toil just to eat, does it? There's a little plaque in Aquith, um, which is commemorating the place where somebody, the inventor of the steam plow, uh, lived in Yorkshire. I think it was about 1840, 1850, I think it was something like that. Steam engine at each end of the field and the great big rope that pulled it backwards and forwards and plowed up the ground. What, what a revolution that was. That was just revolutionary. 
Before that, it was horses pulling plows. Where have we come to? We've now come to automated combine harvesting, which reads GPS signals and constantly monitors the moisture of the field so that we can harvest automatically at precisely the right moment in 200 years. We have become so detached from the hardness that we fail to see that work is hard because cursed is the ground on which we work. Where hard ground was once our danger, profit for a few, arguably, has become our new hard ground, and work continues to be hard. So how do we, how do we even begin to engage with that, and why has this text got something to say about it? I think the, the foundation of how the Christian faith engages with this is when we see that our change of heart, the way our hearts are changed by the message of Jesus, by the message of the gospel, a changed heart impacts our day-to-day -day work. Let's have a look at the way it unfolds. The story is about Naaman, and he's a very powerful man. In, uh, in the commander of the, the army of the king of Aram, which is part of Syria, modern-day Syria. Naaman is an incredibly powerful person. In, in societal terms, he's at the kind of pinnacle. The king and military leaders and the likes, they're, they're right up there. And yet, Naaman has this terrible challenge in life. He has leprosy. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. Do you see, what, do you see the way the Bible sees it differently to the way the king and Naaman saw it? The king and Naaman see that they had been successful in battle. But the way that the God of the Bible describes it is Naaman has been successful, but it was actually God who was behind it, allowing for that to open up in that particular way. He was powerful because God had allowed for that to unfold in the way that it did. And yet, in spite of that, in spite of his greatness, he has leprosy. Leprosy in the Bible, it, it's a skin condition which we don't really know the full detail of. It was probably a generic word which was used for all sorts of different skin conditions. But skin conditions, particularly when we haven't got antibiotics and the likes to treat skin conditions, very quickly became incredibly disfiguring. And so we have this great, powerful person who is visually compromised in the culture of the day. That's the problem that this great man faced. And what we then see, it seems, is that 
during all of those battles, during those raiding parties that we later hear about, the whole of that story has unfolded because God wants to place one slave girl in just the right place at just the right time. Look at the see how it opens up. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel and she served Naaman's wife. Just a young girl. It's all that we know about her. We don't know her age. We don't, know, we don't hear about her, as far as I'm aware, any more than that one statement that she's in this place. Remember a few weeks ago when we looked at Jeremiah and we said that the responsibility of being in a place of exile is to seek the well-being of the place in which you're exiled? Look at this young slave girl who is just the perfect example of that grace-filled attitude. As a slave girl, what does she say to her mistress? If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. That is remarkable. That is seeking the good of the place where you are in exile, isn't it? Actually, in human terms, you would probably think that behind closed doors, she was sniggering at the fact that this great powerful man was actually oppressed with leprosy. And yet, deep in her heart, she has, she has been shaped by the God who she worships. She's been shaped by that God and in her day-to-day work, she seeks the good of Naaman and says, if only he would go to see the prophet, he would be well. I want him to be well. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, we could almost stop there and say that is the way to live our day-to-day work. Yeah, what was she called to do? I dread to think the life of a slave girl in Aram. I dread to think what might have happened. I dread to think what she was called to do, the way she might have been abused. It, it is, carries all the potential for a horrific story. It carries all the potential for us to be able to sit alongside this slave girl and say, living in that kind of environment must have been terrible. You, surely you were looking for every, every possibility to rebel, to rise up, to defeat, to beat, to win. And she would say, don't, don't you know the God that we worship? Don't you know the God that we worship calls us to seek the good of even those who oppress us? Wow! One little slave girl speaks a powerful message to you and me about seeking good when we are oppressed. I wish he'd go to the prophet in Israel because he would be cured of his leprosy. So Naaman goes to the king on hearing this. The king writes him a letter. He takes, him a, takes a whole load of uh, incredibly valuable items to the king of Israel. And on approaching the king of Israel, Naaman speaks to the king and says, I've come to be healed. 
I've come to be healed because I've heard that this is the place where this powerful, effectively what he was saying, in a world where everything was shaped by, by deity, I've heard that your God is powerful, now show me how powerful your God is. Look at verse 7. As soon as, the, as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. That was the immediate reaction of the king of Israel. The writer of two kings, I think, is deliberately creating a contrast. A little slave girl in exile has faith in Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. She believes that He will heal her master. And the king of Israel has no faith in the God of Israel. Do you see the contrast that is being drawn out in this story? The tension that exists. You and me, where are we? Are we in the seat of the king of Israel? Or are we in the seat of the slave girl? Do we believe in the God who we worship? Do we believe that He engages in the real, routine, mundane things of life? Do we believe that He engages when we are in the workplace so that seeking the good of the people around us, that person who everybody dislikes, and maybe there's good reason, do we seek the good so that we might understand why and seek the blessing of the God who we worship on the person who's despised by everybody else in the office or the workshop or wherever we might be? Or do we just join in? Do we just sit alongside all of those others who rise up against that person who is so, so difficult and we do not know the reasons behind the difficulty. So we just join in. Do we believe that the God who we worship can change the heart of that person if we seek their good? That's tiny little things about how we live in a corrupt place, but seek the good. And this little slave girl shows us how to do it. Naaman is sent off to Elisha. It's a great little description. All of the chariots and just turn up at Elisha's front door is the way it's described. <laughs> Can you imagine what that must have been like? This entourage of power and wealth that turns up at the door of the prophet and the messenger comes in and says what's going on outside and Elisha stays put. Tell him to go and to dip himself in the Jordan. Because you see, Naaman, he needed to understand something. He needed to understand something. And we're going to see how the change of heart is absolutely critical to Naaman's understanding. And, it, and we will see then how our change of heart might shape corrupt 
places and how we might consider that our hearts need changing if we do not yet know this God of the Bible. Naaman went away angry. I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. I wanted a big show because I am a big man. That was, that's the heart of it. You know, do, do you not know who I am? And all that you're saying is that I go and dip myself in that filthy, stinking river when we've got beautiful rivers back home. If it, don't you think I've washed myself? Don't you think I've tried this? And yet what you're saying is you don't even come out and see me. Naaman's servants speak wisdom to him. And Naaman becomes a humbled receiver of grace. Verse 13. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? <laughs> just, just think about what they're saying. Is, Naaman wants to be recognized in this healing process. And the servants have the wisdom to go up to him and say, if, if Elisha had come out to you and he'd said, for you to be healed, you have to do a valiant thing or a courageous thing or a powerful thing. You have to climb up that mountain on your knees so that by the top your knees are bleeding. And you'll be shown to be a strong man, but you will receive healing if you do that. Wouldn't you have done it? And Naaman realizes, yes, of course I would. But when he tells you just to wash and be cleansed, it seems as though you've got a problem with that. You see, Naaman is like all of us. He's like all of us. We want to be a part of our salvation. We want to do stuff that saves us. And it is really, really difficult to be just a receiver of grace. So that when Naaman is told, you don't have to do much, you just have to receive the goodness from this God. That, that doesn't feel like it's good enough for me. I want to I want to work my salvation somehow. But the change of heart for all of us and the humbling experience for Naaman was when he realized that he could never contribute to his salvation. He couldn't do the valiant thing. He had to be broken and humbled and wash himself in a filthy river and in washing himself in a filthy river, he was actually made clean. And that humbled him. It changed him dr dramatically. That is the message of the New Testament. That is the message of Jesus. Jesus says, you come to me broken. You come to me derelict. You come to me filthy. 
You come to me rebellious and we want to say, yes, we do. Now, what do I have to do to be forgiven and to be saved? How do I make myself clean? And Jesus says, you can do nothing, but I can make you clean. I can cleanse you. And in fact, that is the most humbling thing for us to understand. We all want to contribute a bit to our salvation. And Jesus says, no, all that you need to do is to believe in me. Just believe in me. Whoever believes in me will be saved. That's all that you need to do. And we, so many of us struggle with that. And we continue to struggle with it because we want to do stuff that saves us. But Naaman became a humbled receiver of grace. And when he became a humbled receiver of grace, he realized that it would have an impact on his working life. Really? Absolutely. Look at verse 17. The worshiper of God recognizes a dilemma. He wanted to give riches to Elisha, and Elisha said, no, don't, don't give me riches. Just worship the God who you've come to know. If you will not receive, effectively, Naaman says, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. I think, I think what he, what he was saying is, I don't want to ever make burnt offerings and sacrifices on the sacred ground of Aram. I want to take some ground from here so that I can feel as though all of my sacrifices from here on are sacrifices to the God who I have come to know. Do you see the heart change? He realizes that his heart, it will never be the same again. Never, never again. He's going back to a place which doesn't recognize the God that he now loves. But he knows that he's somehow got to create a way for him to continue to engage with the God who he now loves. Let me take some earth. I, I imagine... Naaman probably imagined part of his palace where he would lay this earth down and every sacrifice that he made would be made in that place. But it didn't, it didn't result in him realizing that he could just have this little segregated bit of worship. There was work as well. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. I have a work responsibility. When my master enters the temple of Rimmon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down to the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. I think that is breathtaking. Because Naaman realized that in his day-to-day -day job, he was going to 
do something that looked as if he was compromising the faith that he had. That's what he was, that's what he was called to do. I, I imagine the scene. I, I imagine the king must have been an aged king. And he was walking along on the arm of Naaman. Literally, Naaman was supporting him into this heathen temple of Rimmon. And straight away, you're faced with this dilemma. Naaman's become a follower of Yahweh. Should he even go in that temple? But he's got to go in the temple because he's holding the king's arm. And he's a servant of the king. That's his job. But it's even worse because when he gets to the, the altar and the king bows, as the king bows, he has got no choice but to bow as well. That is compromise, isn't it? That is Naaman looking as if he's now becoming a worshipper of Rimmon. Because he's got to bow down with the king and bow down in this temple. This place which he no longer believes in. Because back at home he's got a little patch of soil. Which is the soil of Samaria. Where he worships the God, Yahweh. I don't worship this God anymore. But it looks like I'm going to bow down. What does Naaman give us an example thereof? He says... I want you to understand that my heart is not in the action, even though I might be called to the action at times. That's not where I am, even though I'm demanded to go there. If we, if we just think about that principle in our day-to-day -day work, we can be called to dramatic rethinking. First rethinking is this. Do I even think about my heart in the workplace? Do I even think about it? Do I even think about the fact that I am entering into a, an activity which is bordering on compromise? Or it seems unfair. I have been told that I have to sack that person. And I think that that is profoundly unfair. It's not illegal, but I'm called to do it. I'm called to take part in a project which is right on the edge of misrepresenting who we are as a business. But if we misrepresent ourselves in such a way, we'll win the contract. That's reality. That's real stuff. That, that's real compromising issues. And we're called to faithfulness in those issues. So we say there are times when I will have to bow, but I want you to know that my heart is not in that bowing motion. My heart is not there. If we can think that my heart is, is a significant part of my day-to-day -day activity, then we start to think, where can my heart therefore go? So how does, how does this move from Naaman in the Old Testament right the way through to the New Testament? I think Paul in the New Testament gives us more examples of how our heart is the critical issue when we are faced with compromising issues. 
In Romans and Corinthians, he talks about uh, weak and uh, strong believers and compromising situations. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters, Romans chapter 14. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Why would people eat only vegetables? Because in Rome it would be impossible, to buy, like Corinth, to buy meat which was not sacrificed to idols. And so in buying meat, eating it, I feel as if I'm now entering into a place of compromise. And some people would say, I can't do that. And other people would say, it's fine. Because nothing that comes in from the outside, Jesus said, can corrupt us. You need to know our hearts. If our hearts are in the right place, I can eat whatever I want. But somebody else says, no, I feel a conscience issue here. And I can't do that. And Paul says, both of those are right. Isn't that fascinating? We want the Bible to say, do this and do that. We want a nice, clear, straight line. And there isn't one. There isn't one. What there is, is our heart's conscience before our God, who we worship. And we say there are moments where that compromising situation in the workplace for one person is crossing over the line of compromise and that person cannot do it in all conscience, before their Father in heaven. And they say, I'm, not, I'm going to have to hand him a notice. And another person says, I'm like Naaman here, I am bowing to something that I wish I didn't have to bow to, but I thank God that he knows my heart, because I have been made clean in Jesus. And therefore, I can do this thing, even though my heart isn't really in it. And both of those people, the one who resigns and the one who stays on, have to remain brothers and sisters in Jesus because they are both saved by Him. Both Naaman and the individuals in Romans had understood this thing. My heart now belongs to Jesus and He is my judge. He is my judge. Therefore, there are things that I might do. There are things that I might decide not to do. But God knows my heart. Goes on to say, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Isn't that beautiful? That our conscience before God can result in different decisions for each one of us, but our hearts can remain faithful to the one who we love. When we start thinking like that, about the compromising situations in work, our ability to be salt and light in this world will be magnified. 
Because sometimes we will say, I cannot do that, and we will stand for something. And there will be other times where we say, I don't want to do this. I am bowing to a God that I do not worship. I am bowing to profit before people. But I know that I am absolutely essential in this project being successful. And actually, the success of this project, people's mortgages and well-being ride on this project. And I have a responsibility to their well-being. Do you see the complex, compromising difficulty? Be at peace. Because God has accepted you when you are striving with your conscience in those issues, may you know the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of His Spirit.